Hey everyone, welcome to CookPod, the podcast that's fit to print. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Mark Bittman. He was a columnist at the New York Times for almost 20 years, the author of nearly as many books in those 20 years. And uh, above all, from my perspective, he has been one of the most influential home cooks in the country over that period. And as a pretty ardent and devoted home cook, I was excited at the prospect of talking to him about this because I share his, I think, healthy skepticism of restaurants. I enjoy them, but I feel that their influence on our culture may be larger than it should be. I was pleased to read recently that cookbook sales are actually increasing as more people are cooking at home. I think that's an excellent development. Um, And uh, I'm going to do what I can through this and my various other platforms to uh, encourage people to do more of it. Because I think cooking for yourself and those you love at home is one of the most profound forms of activism that we can engage in, especially if you're growing any of the food that you make for yourself. His most recent book is called Dinner for Everyone. He's also the publisher slash editor-in-chief of Heated, a new venture with Medium, which can be found at heated.medium.com. He's Mark Bittman on Instagram. All his information can be found at markbittman.com. I drove down to Glenwood, where he lives. Uh, If you heard the Kathleen Finley interview, she lives at the same place. It's a beautiful spot, and... We sat in their dining room and had what I think is a pretty good chat. A little tight for time, but we got a lot in. He's a terrific interview, knows very many things about food from more or less every angle, including public policy, public health, and we covered as much ground as as we were able to. I brought him some strawberry plants from my garden and some tarbay bean seeds, which I brought to the States quite a long time ago from France. That's the cassoulet bean. And as a fan of cassoulet, he was pretty excited to get some of those seeds. It was a perfect spring day, just glorious. Honestly, we've had a run of resplendently crystalline weather for about a week now, and it's making me super happy, and the garden is banging. And uh, maybe at some point I'll spend a little time elaborating more deeply on what that entails these days. But for the time being, um, remember, if you're new here, that you can find all of the things, all the episodes that I've done on iTunes and Spotify and all the podcast places. The official site is cookpod.net. I am cookblog on Instagram. Acookblog.com is the site that got this whole thing started a dozen something, 13 years ago now? Yeah, over 13 years. Um, so welcome if you haven't been here before. Welcome back if you have. Enjoy my talk with Mark Bittman in his dining room at Glenwood just a few perfect spring days ago. (laughs) 
I remember when we first met, we kind of bonded a little bit over our um, the similar stories of our grandparents, I think, the Eastern European Jewish immigrants. I was thinking about that, but yes. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, um, in terms of your upbringing, because you've obviously come a very long way, and I think it's it's now like 20 years since How to Cook Everything first came yeah, out, Yeah, exactly right? 20 so years. So you've, you've constructed quite a you know, an empire in those two decades. And, and, um, but I think a lot of that is sort of out in the open. People watched that happen because you had a big platform for a big chunk of that period. And right. so I'm... No, I'm, exactly the same amount of time. It started in the Times Weekly, started in 97, and How to Cook Everything was published in 98. So. Okay, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of interested just because, uh, you know, we have that kind of similar um, cultural history that uh, if... You know, was was food as big a part of your family growing up? Meals together as it was in mine? I mean, meals together, yes. My mother put dinner on the table every night and it was real food, but it wasn't, there was no discussion about how great it was and it wasn't all that great. And um, it was, you know, it was Jewish American, but it was really American American. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were, you know, if my grandmother came over, we ate much more Jewish. But my mother sort of became indifferent to all of that. And to her, it was like broiled meat, mostly mashed potatoes, canned peas. I mean, that's sort of, it couldn't have been like that. And salad couldn't have been like that every night, but it was kind of like that was represented. And was that, was that just a factor of being a sort of that generation that made a point of assimilating? If your parents were that, from somewhere I else? I also think that she... She wasn't interested in exploring cooking, and that was the stuff she knew how to do without thinking about mm -hmm. it very much. Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot of that. Um, but, you know, I will say that, and I haven't, I haven't thought about this as much. Somehow I feel like I'm thinking about this more than I have been, and I wonder why that is, but okay. I have no heritage. I have no cooking heritage. And my mm -hmm. grandmother, my maternal, my paternal, my father's mother... You know, I just remember as being like this little old lady, a real European peasant, um, in every sense of the word. She was like four foot ten, and she probably weighed 175 pounds. Mm. And um, and she cooked, but she died when I was 12, and she wasn't a particularly nice woman, as I recall. And that was not a close relationship. My mother's mother was more assimilated. Um, I mean, spoke perfectly fine English. I'm really, my father's mother never didn't speak much other than Yiddish. But that's as far as, it doesn't matter, that's as far as it went. Yeah. And my grandparents, my mother's father and my mother's mother, who I was pretty close to, they did not want to talk about the old country. They were like, leave us the fuck alone about this. Yeah. We're not interested. Yeah. Um, and I would ask them and they would be like, we don't want to talk about it. And, and I, they left when they were pretty young. Like, they left when they were maybe 18 or 19. So it's not like they grew to emotional maturity and were curious about their ancestors. They didn't know that much. And come 1943, 1944, there was nothing left to know. Yeah. So they each had six or eight brothers and sisters. Huh. Half of them came to America. Half of them stayed in Ukraine, was then Poland. And the half that stayed are all dead, presumably. I mean, yeah, the same thing was true for my grandfather. Everyone right. who stayed died. Right. So I have no family tree. My family tree, we could sort of identify my great-grandparents. And that's, there's a picture of them over there, but I don't even know their names. Yeah. And um, 
but certainly can't go back beyond that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what, you know, I know what the food is like because I know what it's like from other people, but I didn't grow up eating it. I'm not emotionally attached to it particularly. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm way more attached to bagels and locks than sure. I am to so-called yeah. Jewish home cooking. Yeah. You know, Joe Nathan kind of food. Yeah. Um, and it started to bother me. I mean, it started more to, recently. Well, it feels like a loss. I mean, I'm unhappy about yeah. is that. Is that because you're a grandfather now? Is it you feel? Well, so? I guess it could be. But uh, but I mean, I think for my career, it might have been an okay thing because I was wide open. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, even before How to Cook Everything, I remember saying, I don't understand why the best food is supposedly European. Asian food's just as good. And when I started yeah. cooking, and it was mostly self-taught, I started, one of my first cookbooks was an Indian cookbook, and I learned Indian food. I knew how to cook Indian food, at least per this cookbook, before I knew how to cook Italian food. It was like right. before Marcella Zahn, you know. Yeah. And I always thought of Marcella Zahn and Julie Sani in kind of the same way. They were like bringing foreign food, non-American food to yeah. Americans. Neither of them had, I mean, Italian food has some Jewish stuff about it. I mean, you could argue that and supposedly 25% of Italians have Jewish blood or Jewish genes. Well, there were a lot of refugees from Spain who went down. In fact, there are still, there are Italian surnames that if you know your stuff, which I do not, but there are Italian surnames which evidently signify directly that your ancestors came from Yeah, I believe that. Same is true in Spain, of course. Um, But so for me, I think it was an okay thing because when I was growing up, it was like, it was all the same to me. I wasn't wedded to, and also, look, the reality is that Ukrainian cooking is not no one's going to argue it's the best cooking in the world. No one right. sane would argue right. that. So, right. so I'm lucky in a way. Yeah. But I also feel like, gee, I wish there were just some things. People are like, so what are the dishes from your childhood? The, da, da, da. I'm like, well, kosher hot dogs, corned yeah. beef sandwiches, yeah. New York pizza. Yeah. It's like the same as any other New Yorker would say. Right. Not any other New Yorker. I don't want to be that presumptuous, but many other New Yorkers. Well, but I mean, say. but the beauty of New York is that you do, even if you're not sort of aware of it. Um, specifically, you're also like you're surrounded by cuisines from everywhere, right? At, executed at a high level. Well, we, when that, I was growing up, in. that was true because I lived near the UN, and mm-hmm. you had to have every delegation had to have a restaurant that they went to. So there was Indonesian food, you know, Korean food, and so on. When I was in high school, I ate that stuff. But I also, I also think the thing about New York, at least when I was growing up, is that. Um, I always felt like I had more in common with other New Yorkers, regardless of their background, religion, race, whatever, regardless of where they came from, who they were. I always felt like, well, New Yorkers have more in common with each other than they do with similar people, see people similar to them from like Iowa. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I had much more in common with black people in New York than I did with Iowa Jews. Yeah. I felt like, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, not it's, a tested theory, but that's how I no, felt. No, but I mean, there's a powerful out. cultural identity in yeah. that city. And there's a certain attitude and a certain way of moving through the world. Just walking down the sidewalk, there yeah. are certain things that you, know, you can you can spot a native, you know, from yeah. across the street because they know how to move down the sidewalk. Yeah, you know, that's true. And the tourists don't. And so there are ways that people stand out, I think, pretty dramatically. Um, so I, uh, I spoke with Jeff Gordinier recently who, um, I learned, came to food writing via music writing because he kind of, music wasn't sparking any joy in him 
to use a popular phrase, and um, food started to. He'd have, he'd have epiphanies in restaurants like he wasn't having listening to music anymore. So it just kind of... And, and his approach um, is, is really... He's very, very keyed in, not just to all the things that are happening, but to a very particular kind of energetic innovation at the restaurant level, which is really interesting to me. And it's very alien to me because I am such a home cook. And so I'm excited to, to see you so soon after that because, you know, your home cooking practice is such a, is such a powerful and, and ongoing thing. And so I'm curious, growing up in a sort of okay household culinarily, how did the, how'd the home cooking practice really sort of, you know, come together and be this, like, major motivating force? I mean, it is almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was literally 50 years ago, actually, that I started cooking. So um, I started in 1968. So it's a long road. Um, and it's honestly only pretty recently that I would say things like, I'm a pretty good cook. Yeah. Um, but I learned from cookbooks, and I learned because I wanted to learn, and I don't know why I wanted to learn. Maybe it had something to do with that vacuum or maybe it had something to do with leaving New York and suddenly there wasn't cool interesting food everywhere which I hadn't been when I left New York in 67 and I came back in 69 and in those two years um, Craig Claiborne had kind of hit the scene there was kind of this underground gourmet stuff people were going more to restaurants Um, did you leave for school or something? I left for school and I came back to transfer um, and because I kind of missed it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but in the interim, while I was gone, I started cooking. When I came back, I was going to restaurants a lot. And, you know, you'd go out to eat then. It was $3. I mean, of course, you could work all day and make 10 So it wasn't sure. like it was the same, basically. Yeah. Um, and then I moved in with these people and they were all good cooks. I mean, there were people who grew up in... Two of them were people who grew up in homes where cooking had been important, and they themselves were good cooks. And they had the New York Times cookbook, and they had Paula Peck, and they had, uh, I think Marion Burroughs' Elegant But Easy might have been around by then. I mean, they had sort of the joy of cooking, the sort of core stuff, settlement cookbook. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just, I got into it. I I got into it, and I stayed into it. I really liked it. Um, and then eight years later, ten years later, I started writing about food. Um, and then there was this, this sort of closed loop that I was writing about food. My first kid had been born. Um, I had to cook for her. It made my writing better. My writing gave me reasons to cook different things for her and my wife. So, you know, my kids always joke that there was a year we ate nothing but squid, which is an exaggeration, but I'm sure there were a couple of weeks where we ate very little other than squid, and we went through those, you know, like, I'm, here's this new cookbook, I'm going to cook from it until I'm, like, totally sick of this food, and, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, they just, you know, I just discovered, I mean, this is going to sound immodest, but I'm pretty sure I was the first person to write on a national scale about fresh tuna Uh because until like 1985 you might get fresh tuna in a Japanese restaurant but there weren't a lot of Japanese restaurants and people it wasn't like it is now with sushi by any means and and you'd go to a fish market they 
And I went to a fish market and I said to the guy, what's that? And he's like, that's fresh tuna, you should try it. And obviously someone was buying it, but it didn't seem that anyone was buying it and writing about it, and right. I did, and that was probably 83. So how did the, how did the, the how did the food, did you study journalism? No, I didn't, well, did I study journalism? No, I left, when I, when I left college, I went to, I did community organizing, and um, I was actually sort of too shy to do community organizing. I don't really do well with strangers. Yeah, so. It's, I knocked um, on doors for a summer, and it was very anxiety-inducing. <laughs> so someone said to me, well, maybe you want to run the newspaper. Actually, the person running the newspaper was running, said, maybe you want to run the newspaper. And where, I said, which town is it? Somerville, Massachusetts. Somerville, okay. And I said, okay, I'll run the newspaper, and suddenly I was running the newspaper. So that was like, I did that for three years, and that was very much like graduate school. Um, I learned how to type, which is a very important thing for writers. I learned yeah. how to take pictures and work in a dark room, and I learned how to relate to printers and even burn plates, which is a foreign notion right now, but that's how you used to get things printed. And mm -hmm. um, I do layout and well, you know, cutting and pa literal cutting and pasting and waxing and all these things that don't happen anymore. But yeah. um, I did all of that, and I edited other people, and I wrote myself. and. Um, by yeah, by nineteen seventy six, nineteen seventy eight, I was I thought ready to start writing, and by nineteen eighty, I did start writing. Mm -hmm. For who was it at that point? Was it? I, we had moved to New Haven. I started with the New Haven Advocate, which was a weekly. There were three weeklies in this little chain: New Haven, Hartford, and Spring. And I don't remember what they called it. What do you call the I ninety one corridor in Massachusetts? Well, the Pioneer Valley order? Yeah, yeah, well, whatever it was called. Maybe it was just called the Springfield Advocate, but it was basically that valley. Um, and I did restaurant reviews at first, but there were no restaurants. Right. First of all, restaurant reviewing is a thankless task. Yes. Second of all, restaurants, 80% are despicable anyway. So in those days, you're reviewing restaurants in Connecticut, after you're in New Haven. After you go through the first 10, you have to leave New Haven. After you go through the first 20, you have to leave Connecticut. Yeah. So I turned the restaurant column into a cooking column, and then I started writing a weekly cooking column, which was really, in retrospect, very much like The Minimalist. I mean, it was, here's how you make a great meal for dinner tomorrow night or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. I did that starting in, like, 81, probably, and mm -hmm. I didn't stop until 2011, wow. even later. Yeah. So I did that for 30 years. It, yeah, I mean, it's... it's um. I love hearing how people were able to kind of, you know, sort of on the basis of your own impulses, your own desire, and the, most importantly, your own sort of cooking style. You said, oh, I'm going to write about what I do. This is my practice. I'm going to put it out there. And people respond to that uh, because it was a sort of no bullshit, um, not pretentious. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I agree with you about restaurant food for the most part. and. But I also find a lot of cookbooks and, and um, you know, online recipes, magazine recipes, there's a lot of difficulty kind of baked into them in a, in a sort of aspirational way, which I find very off-putting. Um, and it's one of the things that I really liked about the new book um, in terms of your, because even, even your sort of fancy, like right. this, this is for company recipes, they're super accessible and approachable for the yeah, most part. My idea of fancy is not very fancy, it's true. So well, it was interesting, someone said to me, oh, I just got such and I'm gonna not do names here, I don't know why, but That's I mean, fine. I just got such and such a book from such and such, by such and such a well-known cookbook author. 
And I thought the recipes were undoable. I looked at it and I was like, I'm not doing that shit. So, I don't know. I don't have a choice. I can't do... I don't have the patience to test fancy recipes. I don't have the patience to cook fancy recipes. So, yeah, um, yeah the, the difficult recipes in Dinner for Everyone are not very difficult. It's true. Yeah. But, they, but I mean, I, you know, I read it and um, there, I think you did, I think you did a pretty handsome job of kind of threading the needle between if you flip through the book, most of the things in there jump out as being things that you recognize because they're standards. And yet, when you read the recipe and the technique, that most of them have a little bit of a know, twist is the wrong word, but they are they have been customized or made um, yours. Yeah, in well, a way. they're kind of updated. I mean, they are standards, but you know, people still sing standards too, and people still Very make much. music of the stuff that was written in the '30s and '40s, '20s, '30s and '40s, and and they're still contemporary to some extent. So you could think of it that way. I mean, I have a couple of missions and you know, one of them has always been to make cooking more accessible and to make more people cook. And I always said back in the 80s, I always, and then probably not till the 90s when I really became more thoughtful about this, um, I always said if I could get Americans to cook rice and beans once a week, then I would have had a successful career. Mm -hmm. It's not even going to happen. I will have had a successful career anyway for other reasons, but that's the thing. It's like I'm not interested in you being able to make poulet crepinette or whatever. I'm interested in you being able to cook dinner for yourself and your family. And yeah. it doesn't have to be the best thing after you ever ate. It has to be good, and it will be. And that's... I'm not saying there's other there's anything wrong with anything else, although I would say <laughs> could say that, but I'm just saying that's my thing is yeah. that to encourage people to cook. Well, you say thing. somewhere I think it's in the introduction about that you know don't just do the best you can and it's still going to be better than most restaurant food. I mean, I go to restaurants and I just get I don't even want to talk about it. I just uh, get so fed up. I, I went to a very like I went to this place yesterday I of course had never heard of it because now I'm ignoring restaurants but I went to this place in New York and everybody was like wow you're going there da 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 and it was like so I got psyched because everybody was telling me how great it was yeah, going to be that's always like, a mistake that's always a mistake right. no I told Jeff uh, I went to a place not far from where I live that everyone was new and it was, they'd spent a lot of money on it and, and uh, same thing I was like wow finally somewhere cool and new and, and I was angry for three days after that meal yeah I mean, I'd rip shit, like really mad. Right. You know, I'm not saying that just because it, it's a funny story. Like I was, like, I'd fe I felt like taken advantage of. Right. Well, I think there's a closed culture of chefs and, um, and restaurant owners that um, they, and they have an audience. They, and they will continue to have an audience as long as there are people with more money than they need. Um, but it's just not, it's really not. I mean, people associate me with chefs and ask me about chefs and stuff, but it's really not my world and I don't like it particularly. No, it's not your beat, really. It's kind of the opposite. Right. Is, yeah, I mean, and that's... I remember back in the, it's sort of my peak blogging days when people still read such things that um, over and over again I would get comments, and in real life too, comments from people saying, how do you have the time to do this? And I said, do you have cable? Try cutting it. 
you know, and this is now, of course, we live in an era where cable doesn't matter anymore, so you have to manage your distractions differently. But uh, I said, look, I can add three hours to your day like that, you know, just cancel your cable, you know, mm-hmm. stop watching sports, well, uh, yeah, you know, sport. sports is the worst, man. Sports is bad for me, but I mean, I always used to make jokes about people who watched cooking on TV and then said they didn't have time to cook. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I remember when the, when the Red Sox won in 04, I finally retired permanently from professional sports and it, it just added a lot of hours to my week, yeah. you know. I, I have years where I watch and years where I don't. I have to say this is a year where... I paid a lot of attention to the football season, and I am deep into the NBA playoffs. But those will end. I think, I've been watching hoops with my kid because he's really into it, and I, I am happy to share that with him. <laughs> um, but it's but that's very specifically like a father son bonding right. situation. Um, and the Celts are out, so I don't give a shit honestly. But uh, it to me the, the 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 sort of urgent necessity on my part. Um, you know, which I think we share to, to make our own food and to cook for the people we love and the, and the people we sit down at a table with every day, if we're lucky, um, made it a very easy choice for me to not have cable when I moved out of the city and, and, and to put in a big garden, which then, you know, consumed a lot of my time, but in a way that was good exercise, very educational, and then, like, unbelievably inspiring in terms of what would come in because you realize that, like, a sprout becomes, you know, there, there, there are eight different phases of the life cycle of your average vegetable, and each one of those might offer you something different that you can eat and a mm-hmm. different texture or flavor or a different idea for how to use it because it resembles something even that it isn't. But like, what if I try that with it? And, and so for me, it was just this wonderful rabbit hole of, of innovation and education and, mm-hmm. and just good health because the quality. And then beyond all that, um, with my admittedly... Uh, minuscule platform, but I became obsessed with convincing people through pleasure because there's just so much yelling um, and so much hectoring and so much, to me, like I said before, there's a lot of just really aspirational stuff that really is kind of off-putting. Like it's it, it's kind of like porn. It gets people super excited about stuff that they can't achieve because they don't have a staff of 12 to execute this dinner party that the magazine says they should do. I mean, it's a recipe for failure mm-hmm. more than anything else mm-hmm. and inadequacy, which just makes you hate yourself more. And then that's the wrong treadmill to get on, especially with food, which has so many other issues that, you know, that overlap with it. And so for me, it was, and it still happens. Like every time people come over to my house, like now the salad is just, you know, heavenly. Right. It's perfect. And so I make a bowl of salad for people and I dress it with a little bit of homemade vinegar and olive oil and a little garlic and mustard, like the simplest thing. And they all go, holy shit, this is, I, where did you get this salad? And they said, I cut it 10 minutes ago. Mm. That's what's so different. It's that I just cut it. They're all still alive. They just walked in the door and got washed and you're eating. And, and when you see that, when you see people's pupils dilate at the pleasure of just a head of lettuce, right, which is not the most interesting food in the world, to me it was always about just like if you do it yourself, you can have these experiences. Like... You know, I teach people how to cook in Umbria where everyone's just permanently high from being there. But what I try to do is tell them that you come home and just pick the dandelions in your yard and you can have the same food. It's the same thing. It's a dandelion. It's just not, you're not in Umbria, but you could get the same experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, home cooking is this very powerful didactic tool, I think, for spreading the word about cooking for yourself and making time to do it. And, right. and and so it, it becomes a virtuous thing. And it's been really sort of therapeutic for me, you know, beyond uh, representing a, a career choice. And um, so that, it's, it's kind of a long-winded way into another question I had, which is, um, 
now that Heated's out the out of the gate, um, you've put up at least a couple things, and you got nominated for for uh, that other one about um, you know where this sort of battle you're waging against quackery in 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 you know superfoods and and, right. and, and fad diets, you know, and um, I'm curious how you see the battle lines being drawn because there is so much quackery and so much misinformation that's now endemic um, to the world we live in. And, and you know, I'm this close to giving up, you know, every other day just by reading the news. Right. So, Well, I think two things. I mean, one is if you're clever and lucky, you can invent a food trend that might have a grain of truth in it and you can make a lot of money doing that. Yeah. Um, so the various spins on the Atkins diet that people have invented over the years or the stuff with leptin or the stuff with the FODMAP diets or wheat belly, which is the most egregious example of exploiting gluten oh, allergies. Oh, yeah, the green brain, right, that goes with right, that. Right, right. Um, so that's one, but that's a, that's a micro-industry compared to the fact that it's in the interest of you know, big-time food processors for people to be confused about what's good for them because the answers to what's good about, the answers to what a good diet is are so simple and so straightforward and everybody knows them. Um, you know, there is this kind of line that, there is this kind of line that, well, people need to be educated, they don't understand, da 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 it's bullshit. Everybody needs to know. Everybody knows they need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Everybody knows that junk food is called junk food for a reason. Everybody knows that we're raising animals in the worst possible way, and that they're too much of their meat is not good for us. Everybody knows that stuff, but it's the industry's job to sow confusion and to obfuscate and so on. And they do a terrific job of it because they have so much money and they have so much at stake. Um, so I think that's the battle line. I really think the battle line, in a way, is between children. And this was, you know, Robert Choate is the Chevrolet family. So no. Robert Choate, you'll recognize the story. Robert Choate went before Congress in like 1970, 1972, something like that. Which, in the early 70s, there was a very strong uh, Nader-esque kind of food movement that said they're poisoning us, basically. It was after Silent Spring, and it was after... Um, uh, Nader's unsafe at any speed, and there was just a general feeling, there was a back to the land movement, a number of, the population of Vermont, the number of farms in Vermont increased by 25% yeah. in the 70s, which is incredible. Yeah. They were falling apart everywhere else. Anyway, there were a lot of things going on, and among these things was this guy Robert Cho went before Congress, and he testified that most breakfast cereals had about as much nutrition as their boxes did when they were shredded and mixed <laughs> with milk. So I mean, he literally ranked the top 60 breakfast cereals and declared 40 or 50 of them nutritionally worthless when compared to shredded cardboard. Wow. And um, it was a big thing. It was yeah. a really big thing. And General Mills or General Foods, I guess General Mills, Whatever, one of the big cereal companies was like, well, you can't get kids to eat what they won't, they don't want to eat. Well, actually, that's not true. You can teach kids to eat whatever you want to teach the kids to eat. And yeah. um, we have let marketers teach kids to eat junk food. And they learn to eat junk food before they're old enough to talk in some instances. And then it's reinforced for 
10 years, 15 years, and then suddenly they're late adolescent and they're eating like crap and they realize it would be better if they weren't eating like crap. And then they become grown-ups like us who struggle with food issues all the time because everybody we know and everybody everybody knows struggles with food issues. It doesn't mean that everybody's anorexic or bulimic or obese or has like blatant problems with food. It means everybody's like, yeah, I should have a salad for lunch, but I think I'm going to have a cheeseburger. Or, yeah, yeah I could eat more reasonably, but maybe I'm going to be a vegan until I can't stand it anymore. Yeah. Or and no one else can stand me either. Right. <laughs> or whatever. When the fact is, you know, the simple, the simple truth is there's like a list of eight or ten food categories of foods that's, that are really good for you. And the more of those you eat, the better off you are. And the less of everything else you eat, the better off you are. And most people know that, and it's the food industry's job to make you do the opposite. Yeah. So their best hope for success is to train children to eat badly. And that's where I think the bat. If you ask me where the battle line is, I think it's mm. between... Oh, so that's why I started talking about Robert Choate, because yeah. he said... He said, this is a battle between children and grown men. And he was exactly right. It's a battle between marketers with billion-dollar budgets and two-year-olds. And not only do they have billion-dollar budgets, but they have teams of psych child psychologists yeah, yeah, on staff. They have staff. whatever they want to have. Yeah. They have whatever they want to yeah. have. It's illegal, I believe, in Norway to advertise to anybody younger than eight years old. Well, you know, there are some, there are some countries that have done something about, some things about this. Canada is doing better. UK is doing better. But it's a long, hard road, and every year that goes by means another micro-generation of people who are going to have problems when they grow up. And yeah. Until you address what happens with two-year-olds and four-year-olds and six-year-olds, it's pointless to address what's happening with 30 and 40-year-olds. Yeah. It's not pointless, but it just made that much more difficult. Yeah. So what do you say? I read something recently, and I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember who wrote it, but um, it, um, it stood out... Uh, to me, as being, um, I thought, pretty far-sighted in a good way, uh, that there's a certain point past which, you know, because obviously we're here at a at a at a real center of of you know locavore um, achievement and and uh, activism, uh, but that there's a certain point past which um, this model can't really gain traction nationally. And Kathleen said specifically that it's not supposed to. It's supposed to be local, regional. Right. Um, but that in order for, because I, I'm the first person to cop to my own privilege in terms of being able to um, often work at home and start dinner at four o'clock if right, I feel like right. it, you know, uh, which is a luxury that many, many people do not enjoy and right. I never. Um, so I have all the time I need for the most part to cook all the things that I can blog about and photograph. And there's a, the, the, the gist of this article is that until you take on paid leave and universal health care and all these much larger not even getting into agriculture mm. then we're mostly preaching to the choir because most people don't have the means to do the things that you and i get to do most days which is make wonderful meals for ourselves and our family well i don't think that means you're mostly preaching to the choir i think it means you're look the problem is much bigger than food everything is interconnected you when you start talking about social justice issues, I'm going to sneeze. Okay. I guess I'm not going to sneeze. When you start talking about social justice issues, you're not, you leave food behind in a way. I mean, food is related to everything. So you can talk about workers in the food chain, of course, 
but you can talk about workers, period. You can talk about bad, unfavorable scheduling at McDonald's, but you can talk about paid leave, or you can talk about unfavorable scheduling in the medical field and among hospital workers, which, unless you're talking about food hospital workers, has nothing to do with food, but it's right. the same issue. Yeah. So do you want to talk about social justice? I'm happy to talk about social justice, but... It's not strict. It's bigger than a food issue. Yeah. And you're, of course it needs to be addressed. I think it needs to be addressed. As I said, I started my professional life as a community organizer. Food was not even considered then. But I think food gets short shrift. Mm -hmm. And um, In what way? Well, because I think food connects everything, connects all the dots. It's something people, everybody relates to. I think, in a way, it's an easier in to climate change to go through food than to go through fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about that. doesn't really matter. The point is, every issue that forward-thinking people care about can be discussed through food. Right. And... I want to talk about all of those issues. Of course you could talk about other issues that are not food issues. And of course food is not going to be solved, air quotes around solved, sure. um, until everything else is solved. Right. But nothing else is going to be solved until food is solved also. So, you know, as yeah. I said, it's all interconnected. The so-called solution is years down the road. But we have to make incremental change and see what happens. And so, for example, yeah. if you started to ban the marketing of junk food to children, you start to change almost everything. Yeah. And, you know, the same thing with if you set minimum wage at $15 an hour in the fast food industry, you start to change almost everything. And so if you legalize immigration because you want to have farm workers so we can all have food from California or from the Southwest, then you change things about their immigration. And, and you, there's no need to look... I mean, there is a need... It's nice to have people who are thinking about what society might look like 50 years from now, 100 years from now. I love reading that stuff. But really, we have to make whatever changes we can make now. You don't yeah. go from A to Z. Um, and then you have to adjust to those changes because some of them are going to work and some of them are not going to work. So the soda tax has reduced soda consumption in Philadelphia, fifth biggest city in the country, by 35%, by a third. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Does that mean that every city should be adopting a soda tax? Well, I'm not so sure. We have to look at that. We have to look at what the impact of reducing soda consumption by a third actually means. Did everybody just go to New Jersey and buy their soda? Right. We don't know. Is that the best possible idea we can come up for reducing come up with for reducing sugar consumption? I don't know, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Sure. You have to evaluate it in it's like, you know, sort of like a balloon where you push in one spot and yeah. it bulges in another spot. You have to then reevaluate. What are you trying to do and what, what's sort of the next goal? Right. And so the, um, the vegan before six thing, which is now, what, it's got to be about 10 years? Eight, I think. Eight, okay. Um, that, I mean, that was something, I mean, I certainly know that even in my... Um, peripheral capacity in the food world it's um it's certainly tough to keep my, the boyish figure that i used to have <laughs> you know? right um and uh, obviously people who who eat out more uh, or just eat more in general have an even harder time when you're assigned to go cover things and which require eating them um 
was that a sort of, I mean, I know, I know you've written about it extensively, but, but with, with now the benefit of hindsight, do you see that as having been, I mean, obviously it's been influential. Obviously the new book uh, is, is kind of a, a, a very clear how-to in that regard, um, although it extends to dinner, so you can, I guess, right. mix and match your veganism depending on your needs or the moods or whatever. But um, the, that seems to me to be the confluence of everything you were just saying, because it, it, it affected your personal health. Yep. Um, it, you, you talked about how charlatans can get lucky with a marketing idea, but I mean, this strikes me as being the kind of thing that actually did quite well in terms of catching fire and becoming something, a concept that people could kind of glom onto. Um, do you see now, I guess eight years in, um, has the, like, like Philly, do you now have enough data coming back to you to see how it's maybe... Well, I don't think it was, you know, it was hilarious as I was at this lecture a few months ago, I guess, more than a few weeks ago. And the guy was outlining, outlining ideal diets or optimal diets or whatever, and he just was going down the sort of list. And at some point, I wasn't paying that much attention, frankly. It was academic and sort of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, uh, and then there's the two-thirds vegan diet, and my ears perked up. And I went up to him afterwards, and I said, what's the two-thirds vegan diet? And he said, oh, it's vegan before six. It's your thing. It's vegan before six. I just didn't like the name vegan before six, so we're calling it the two-thirds vegan diet. So I thought, okay, so it's sort of established as a thing. But really, it's not, I said at the beginning, and I would say right now, it's just a system for getting more plants into your diet. And whatever system works for getting more plants into your diet, and whether you call it flexitarian, vegan B6, or two-thirds vegan, or flexitarian, or reducitarian or less meatarian or whatever yeah. you want to call it, yeah. the idea is the same. Right. We don't need more data. We know that's the right way to eat. Vegan before six was just a personal strategy for me to make sure that I followed the kind of diet that I knew was going to be better for me because if I don't have the rules, I won't do it. Yeah. I'll just say like, yeah, okay, well, today I'm going to have a couple of eggs and maybe some cheese for breakfast with toast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, today I'm going to have, well, maybe I have a tuna fish sandwich for lunch. But if I was like, okay, I have to have whatever, you know, leftover vegetables for breakfast or oatmeal or whatever, and then I have to have rice and beans for lunch because that's the rule or whatever it is, vegetable soup, I do it. Yeah. And I have to have nuts and raisins for a snack in the afternoon because I'm, you know, not allowed to have licorice or chips or Well, you just wrote something about that recently, about how you really wanted a cheeseburger, but you had some nuts and some fruit and whatever, and you waited about half an hour, and all of a sudden your body was like, eh, I don't need the cheeseburger anymore. I did write that, and it's true. The cheeseburger was sitting in my mind. Oh, yeah, they do that. They They do that. They they revolve very attractively in your mind. So the tell me a little bit then about how the gig at the School of Public Health kind of dovetails with this, because that's, you know, I mean, it's food but in a very particular direction that's that's uh, I think outside the normal realm of food writing well I wanted to try to I wanted to have fewer deadlines was the truth so mm. that's why I you know stopped writing for the times and stopped taking magazine assignments and so on but I wanted to continue to have an impact and I wanted to continue to have a home so I thought I would try um 
Mailman, which is the Columbia School of Public Health, because their mission is good and they wanted to focus more on food. They want to focus more on food. And if they're, I mean, if public health is not about food, then I don't know what it's about. So, uh, you know, it used to be about sewage and or whatever, yeah. fresh water, and sure. it still is in some places, but not so much around here. And, you know, we figured out vaccinations. <laughs> we the, thought so. The idiots excluded. And we figured out uh, running water. And we figured out waste disposal. We figured out a lot of that stuff. I'm not saying there's not issues with those things and, and so on. But the leading cause of disease right now is the leading kinds of diseases are chronic diseases. And the leading cause of chronic disease is diet. And... So that makes, to me, that makes public health and diet really, really important. And public health is also about climate change, and public health, to me, is about environment and agriculture. So it all ties in very nicely. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, academia has not done a good job of paying attention to food. Um, neither has journalism done a good job paying attention, until very recently, has not done a good job of paying attention to food. Um, but... I thought, well, here's a here's a thing where I can be useful, and that is to try to bring the bigger issues of food to a very well-respected, fabulous institution and talk about this stuff. You know, frankly, I'm not sure how well it's working. Um, I really like it, and it is it gets better every year, but it's it's a it's a bit of a grind, and um, you don't get the sort of adrenaline jolt that you get from publishing a piece every few days. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I'm older too, so all of that's mixed together. But I'm plugging away. I'm keeping at it. We made really the last few months. We made some really good progress. And in, in um, what way? Like tell well, me. Well, we got got some got some interesting funding, and we got a way to have students do internships in food that allows them to do them without becoming impoverished. Because you know, there's a. I mean, talking about how food intersects with everything else, the number of students, general graduate students especially, but undergraduates too, on food stamps, the number of students who are food insecure is yeah. like skyrocketed. Yeah. This has to do with student debt and, and yeah. people having trouble making a living in general. Um, so to ask students who are already paying a lot of money to go to school yeah. to then do free internships on top of that. It's like, well, when are they actually supposed to make the money to support themselves? Yeah, so absolutely. I lobbied hard to raise money so that public health students who are interested in food could get internships that would be paid. And what kind of internships are uh, there? We have someone working at Westside who's going to be working at Westside Campaign Against Hunger. Somebody working who's going to be working here at Glenwood on a project. Um, we have five altogether, but the other three are slipping my mind. But they're like that. They're database projects or they're <clears throat> program-based projects in food. Um, but where they're not just, I mean, of course, they're learning experiences for the interns, but it's also that these are people who are about to be professionals. They finished a year of public health school. They are to some extent, young. They're not fresh. Most of the students at Mailman are not fresh out of undergraduate work. They've gone and done, they've been in the Peace Corps, they've worked in jobs in the city, they've worked on farms, they've done whatever. They have life experience and then they've decided they want to be public health professionals and they've come back. And then of those, 
5% or whatever are especially interested in food, but they're people who already have worked in food and they're people who already have skills. So yeah. Yeah. it's, I think it's a cool thing. Yeah. And um, you're teaching? I teach a course on public health, food, public health, and social justice, but um, I think of more impact and maybe more interesting is that I've run a lecture series the last two years. Actually, I've run it the last four years because I did it in Berkeley for two years before that, where we've gotten people from all across the world of food to come and talk to mm -hmm. community and students and so on, and that's that's been cool. It's happening again next year, too. Uh -huh. With a different roster of people. One hopes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, this year... It was a, this year was interesting because I tried to get people no one had heard of. So, of course, if you want to attract people to your lectures, you have to get Bill McKibben, for sure. example, Marion Nessel, yeah. Michael Pollan. Yeah. If you want to get people who are food chain workers, it's a little bit less of a draw. So sure. it's, but there's more to learn. So you might have smaller audiences, but you might have a bigger impact on those smaller audiences because everybody knows what Bill McKibben, Bill McKibben, I don't mean to, he's a fabulous speaker, but yeah, but, but so we've, we've read, we've, right, we know what he's right, about. Right, so, yeah. Okay, um, and so how then, how then does Heated represent you, you know, the sort of way forward, not wanting regular deadlines, but nonetheless you are contributing. Um, how, how is this, I don't know, scratched a particular itch or representing? Well, I'm not contributing much. I mean, well, that's not, that's not true. I'm not writing much. Um, I will write more as time goes on. And, you know, we're talking when Heated is really two or three weeks old. Yeah. It really just relaunched. So, you know, we had our little spasm there but um but now we're in full swing and um and i feel like my role is you know we have a little editorial staff there are three people working on it besides me mm -hmm. they're all working much harder on it than i am but they're all much younger than i am and i think that my role is to you know i asked a friend of mine who used to run the new york times magazine what percentage of stories are you supposed to reject? And he said, you should reject every single story you can reject. <laughs> so I, I think the idea is to, I think the idea is to really um, find things that might not run elsewhere that other people are not doing at the same time. I don't want to cover news particularly unless we can take an angle on it that other people are not going to take. Yeah. And you know, quite frankly, and. Um, if Heated had launched 10 years ago and I wanted to launch something like it 10 years ago, it would have been unique. Yeah. It's far from unique now. Um, so we have to do a really interesting job. Yeah, and there are a lot of really interesting print quarterlies there too are, now. Yeah, there's print stuff. There's a lot of online stuff that's really good. You know, I'm a big fan of Civil Eats and always have yeah. been. And, you know, you're not going mean, to... It's tough to compete with Serious Eats on cooking. And mm -hmm. So, but I think that there's... Very few people out there who have my background and have my blend of interests, let's say, whether they're skills or not, I don't know. And I think we can be we can be both eclectic and eccentric in ways that maybe other people can't. Yeah. And more more blatantly political than most also. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't care. You know, I don't care if people call us communists. For example, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, but at some point they will. Yeah. Um, so we want to support people who are doing the right work, and we want to support people. We want to support writers who are writing good stuff, and we also want to have people whose opinions are not mine. So I want to be a little, a little backgroundy. I think I'm beginning to feel like maybe I'm a publisher more than an editor that okay. it's, it is my publication I'm in charge medium came to me and we have a, the deals with me and you know I could write everything and keep all the money but mm-hmm. I'm not that's not what I want to do I want to like see what happens if we we lay compost on some good soil and plant a bunch of ideas and see how that grows. I mean, in a year, we'll know a lot more. Even in two months, we'll know a lot more. Sure. We're still making tons of mistakes. And at the beginning, I was saying things like, well, if we're printing, printing, if we're running a story a day, say there are 200 weekdays in a year, and say we're running 200 stories a year, even if we make 100 mistakes, we'll run 100 great pieces. Even if we make 150 mistakes, we'll run a great piece a week. That's wrong. We are like a print magazine, a traditional print magazine, very much in the way that we don't have a news hole, but we have a budget, and we want to pay people for stories. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to like insult people by paying them badly. We want to support writers. Um, so that means we really only can run about a story a day. Yeah. And any day that we don't run a good story, we wasted that day. Yeah. So now I feel completely differently. Mm. And that's why I want to reject almost every... Because we're getting tons of pitches I'm now. Sure. And, and, you know, we're probably getting more than 10 a day. And it's just starting. So how many... If I'm writing a piece a month and Melissa is going to write a couple pieces a month, or if I'm writing two pieces a month and Melissa's writing a couple pieces a month and we're committed to this person and that person and that person. There's not a huge news hole for new stuff, new people to come in, and yet we want new people to come right, in. Right, right. So that's going to be the trick. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens. Oh, yeah, me too. Right. Well, thank you for talking to me. Well, it was really, really fun. It. Good. Good. Thank you, Peter. Mark Bittman. His new book is called Dinner for Everyone. His new venture with Medium is called Heated and can be found at uh, heated.medium.com. He's Mark Bittman on Instagram, markbittman.com. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, acookblog.com. Theme music by my son, Milo Barrett, smilob.com. His beats are for sale much like the one that I used as the theme music for this very thing. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please, if you are so moved, rate five stars and tell your friends. And tune in next week.